Well, hello, and I hope you are ready for a fantastic episode ahead today. Last week, we had Pastor Ben Tifi with us. We were talking, um, had a really amazing conversation around the question of, is God a moral monster? Yeah, and I guess where we ended up with that was a sense that uh, certainly God isn't, the God revealed in Christ certainly isn't, but we as human beings uh, have a propensity to project what's going on in our own hearts onto God. And in a sense, we, we need a big divine buddy who's just like us. That, that makes us feel secure. But the problem is it gives God a bad name. And we get a very inaccurate view of who God really is. And, and the need, therefore, to always return back to the cross. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is just like Jesus Christ. He was always just like Jesus Christ. And really, that whole journey through Scripture is a progressive revelation of that until he had to come so that we could finally see him clearly. That's where we ended up. But we probably didn't answer some of the questions we were going to. Instead, we went all over the place and it was awesome. If you missed it, you need to get right back there yeah. and have a listen. And hey, if this content's helpful for you, if you're enjoying it, make sure you share it. Send us an email. Send us some questions. We love hearing your feedback. But today, without any further ado, we are joined again by Pastor Ben Tifi from all, Alice Springs. All the way from the Northern all Territory. All the way through. You know, I have to ride my camel back from all the way from Alice Springs every time we record one of these things it's a three-day camel ride and, uh, and then back for this and then i'm three back on the camel again so happy hump day people whatever you're doing yeah. Yeah. You're having a good day. happy hump day different meaning analysis <laughs> is, it, is that right <laughs> takes on a whole different connotation okay, okay. retract retract we're going to move on from the moral monster question mm. and and i guess ben would be really interested to get your take on some of the ethics yeah. of scripture what arises from scripture what a great discussion point mm. Really. Mm. and i think I'm, I really like the way you said that, that we we are moral monsters and so we project things onto God because we need this divine buddy, you know. Mm. And uh, there's this famous passage from the author Aeneas Nin where a boy and a girl are walking along beside a pond and he's going, look at this place, this is disgusting, that pond has scum and sludge and look how gross it is. And the girl is walking along and her inner monologue is, wow, look at all the pretty colours, this is amazing, look at the vibrancy of life, this is incredible. And Aeneas Nin draws the conclusion, we see things not as they are. But as we are, that's it. It's mm. incredible. It is a great thought. And when it comes to scripture, it's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, when Richard Dawkins reads scripture, he says God is a moral monster. When Christopher Hitchens reads scripture, he sees God as a moral monster. Uh, but when you read scripture in the lens and in the light of the God that we see in the face of Jesus Christ, that takes on a completely different significance around what is being affirmed and what is being mm-hmm. critiqued, mm-hmm. and that's pretty incredible. One of my favourite illustrations of that is uh, from the the really bad Batman movie with Nicole Kidman in it, and she's a psychiatrist. (laughs) And so she shows Batman these Rorschach tests, and the Rorschach tests are the classic therapist. They show you these ink blots on a piece of paper, and they say, what do you see? And uh, so she shows Batman, and Batman goes through five of them and goes, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm, 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 wow, got a thing for bats, doctor? (laughs) And she says, well, actually, uh, Bruce Wayne, that's a Rorschach test, which means it reveals something more about you. So the question is not whether I have a thing for bats, but whether you have a thing for bats. And it's an incredible moment. So you'll often hear people talk about this with scripture, that the Bible is a Rorschach test, that Mm. that you will read it and see. And what you see in there actually says incredible things about you and about what's going Mm. on inside Mm. your soul and inside your heart. And so we should always sort of, you know, keep that in the back of our minds. How cautiously 
approach scripture because if I just hurtle along with no principle or understanding, then all I'm doing is I'm bringing my meaning, my understanding, my thoughts, my predispositions and my ideology and I'm pressing them into the text of scripture. Yeah. That's a process that we, you know, you guys know, we call it isogesis when in, mm-hmm. in biblical studies and hermeneutics. I'm reading a meaning into it. And you can read whatever meaning you want into scripture. You know, you can portray God in all sorts of ways, people in all sorts of ways. Um, you can formulate all sorts of doctrines and find an anecdote in scripture that will justify that doctrine. If you mm. want 300 wives, Solomon's your man. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, why, how you would have enough time to deal with all that, I have no idea. Um, so one has to work at, oh, my, my job is to exegete, not isogete. And so exegesis, that means to draw the meaning out yeah, rather than push the meaning in. So when it comes to answering questions, is God a moral monster? How do I deal with the ethics of scripture? What am I called to? What are the values I'm being asked to espouse? The, the, the first step is, well, in whatever I'm doing with all of scripture, am I drawing the meaning out or am I pressing the meaning in? Very good. So mm. what meaning is in this sacred text that must be drawn out? Because if the meaning is correctly drawn out, I find it to be life-affirming and life-transforming. I find it to be super, you know, let me just say it in a weird way, supernatural software that creates something different that wouldn't have been in existence if I hadn't have been transformed by that text. Mm. And that that transformation is not from a nice person to a more violent person or from a nice yeah, person yeah. to a more bigoted, racist, genocidal, sexist, chauvinistic maniac or something. Mm. Yeah, there's something different at play there. So I've got to be cautious about the way I approach it and say, hang on, I've got to humbly approach this text saying I should be very careful because what I think I know about this is not even close to what could be known. Yeah, mm. yeah. So I've got to pause and around the ethical discussion, shouldn't rush into that, shouldn't rush into what I'm being told. So I think that's one of the underlying frameworks. Mm. Then the second one is understanding that, you know, you used the phrase before, the progressive revelation of who God is. So I have to understand that like any good story, you don't stop meeting, reading in the middle of the book and go, oh, well, I've had that experience. You know, if you read Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express and you stop in the middle, you never find out the great surprises at the end of the book when the narrative is resolved, the point yeah. of tension yeah. of the plot is resolved. And so in a way, every story in Scripture that's a narrative has to be read a certain way because the stories are meant to open our eyes to something about God. Um, And they do it in surprising ways. Like sometimes bad behaviors are articulated and we don't get the narrator inserting. And by the way, God didn't like this. And we read it wrong. We can understand oh, well, this is in the Bible. Maybe God likes this. You know, that's what you see the feminist critique of of, uh, the Hebrew Bible is that uh, God is silent at many junctures in the the poor behavior of patriarchy, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But Gordon Wenham, who's an incredible Bible scholar, probably got one of the most insightful commentaries on Genesis if you can deal with the Hebrew that he puts in there because he doesn't doesn't translate it. He just gives you these chunks of Hebrew words and stuff. So it's a bit harder to read. But if you could persevere through it, one of his insightful statements is, is that all of the all of the men behaving badly bits of Genesis is not God's affirmation of it. It's not God's revelation of this is how men are supposed to be kick button and treat women as chattels. Mm. It's actually a critique of that. Or well, those stories exist because it critiques life when people project their image onto God rather than live as the image of mm. God. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of reading narrative, first of all, because a lot of our ethical, you know, our ethical dilemmas from scripture come from the narratives we read, genocide, violence, you know, slavery. They're the classic ones that you get talked about, but there's also all sorts of others, animal cruelty, you know. Mm. Um, 
so that's narrative. Grappling with narrative is a huge one. And then the other one is understanding that Genesis to Revelation, the canonical formation of Scripture itself is a narrative, even though it's got mm. poetry, it's got wisdom, it's got laws, but the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, is one sweeping narrative. Mm. And so ethical ethical questions can't be resolved unless you grapple with the entirety of the narrative any more than you could uh, rip murder on the Orient Express in half, half yeah, yeah. and think, yeah. well, now I know the story because I read the first five mm-hmm. chapters. You know, right. So one has to persevere through to the conclusion of the narrative because the conclusion of the narrative usually causes you to rethink everything that happened. And it's classic, like this is how scripture works, mm. but Agatha Christie is brilliant at it. She gives you red herrings all the way through her writings, these whodunit novels, mm. and you're all the way through and now they're making it into movies. So for those who don't like reading, you can just go mm. see the movies as well. But all the way through, every five minutes, you're changing your mind on who you think the bad guy is, <laughs> which mm. doesn't get revealed till the very last scene in the film. Mm. And then you're wrong about it because the whole thing is designed to make you have this aha, big surprising moment mm. at the conclusion of the narrative. And so scripture has a sweeping narrative, Genesis to Revelation, and then the important thing is that in there is a creed that we are supposed to embrace. And that's a that's an important idea for grappling with the ethics of Scripture mm. is asking yourself the question, but what is the creed that is embedded in this text? Because the creed is not, oh, well, go and have 300 wives because Solomon did and 700 concubines because Solomon did. What is the creed that I'm being asked to embrace? Well, I'm asked to persevere through the story and see how he's a lunatic and mad at the end of his life, saying things like everything's now meaningless, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. because then the story has meaning, me finding out how did this guy go mad and then me finding out that his incredible sexual proclivities and all sorts of other grab for powers and all this mm-hmm. stuff, that that actually damaged his humanity and sent him mad. So therefore those stories are an illustration of what not what to do. Not to do. <laughs> right. and, then, yeah. and, and because God is not like a coercive, overbearing mother that grabs you and makes you put on a jumper when you get cold and stuffs food in your mouth, right? Mm. God doesn't operate by coercion. God operates by consent, which means God says, I'm going to show you and reveal to you how to wisely live, but then you have to grapple with it yourself yeah. and make a choice. Yeah. So when you read the Solomon narrative, there's no divine critique. God's not grabbing you and going, you see, you idiots, that's yeah. how you're supposed to do yeah. it. It's absent because you're supposed to you are trusted with divinely given agency to grapple with and make wise choices. And God doesn't even always tell you what colour undies to wear in the morning. You know? yeah. And, yeah. and I think one of the ways we get there, Ben, is maybe the some maybe unhelpful images or mislabeling, misterming, and I'd always get in trouble talking about this, but when we say word of God, when we say the Bible's the word of God, as opposed to the word in flesh, Jesus Christ, yeah. um, then it tends to put this authoritative stamp. Therefore, everything written in the Bible must be right, not just accurate, but ethically right too. So God's not commenting on Solomon's 300 wives and his extravagant lifestyle, etc. even though And there breaks- are people who make that argument, right? There, yeah. are, there are Christian groups or individuals anyway, but there are religious groups that all of them have embraced that that narrative is an affirmation of the lifestyle choice, mm, mm. which means I can move to Salt Lake City and have numerous yeah, wives yeah, because yeah. God lets you do that. Yeah. If, you, if you lived in the patriarchal times... God's people did that, so we should do it. Yeah, yeah. so that right. illustrates so that, your point. So yeah, there's yeah. no sort of – there's almost this sense of I can't judge Scripture. Mm. I can't judge whether it's trying to teach me a positive or a negative. I have to just accept it at face value, and if it's in the Scripture, God wants it. 
or if it's someone that I perceive as a man of God, someone God wants to use. Yeah. It's it's amazing how we become blind. You know, David's a classic example. Just how messy an individual David was. You know, we preach all Absolutely. the good stuff, the David, Goliath, uh, you know, all the victorious stuff and whatnot, and sort of almost excuse the other stuff, you know, unless we're using it for a lesson on what not to do in marriage or, you know. Yeah. But and it, with kids you do this because in Sunday school they don't really talk about the bad stories in Scripture. And, you know, like, yeah, and you yeah. kind of have to keep kids' church G-rated, but mm-hmm. like the classic felt bored felt fuzzy board Christianity, you know, we learn about David and Goliath and David's mm. illustration of faith and, you know, and well, what about the story about where his son raped his other daughter? You know, that, mm-hmm. that's yeah. not a good kid's church story, no, that no, one. You know? no. Oh, I, I found this recently reading like a, my daughter, like Bible stories and, and from like a children's Bible and, and how challenging it is to read some of those stories to a three-year-old, even in a <laughs> kid's Bible context where you're talking about the plagues and stuff like that and then God killed Pharaoh's firstborn son and it's like... How do I read this, this yeah, to my, to to my daughter? Like, we yeah. used to joke when our kids were little, they're all older teenagers or young adults now, but we used to joke like, oh, don't get into the sealed section of Scripture, guys, just yet, you know, like because mm-hmm. there's, again, because they're highly nuanced narratives yes. and yeah. one has to be very cautious about the conclusions you draw which are from your own perspective. Mm. I, mm-hmm. I think an over a, a classic story about this is the Samson narratives in Judges, right, mm-hmm. because... You know, in all the movies, Samson is the muscle-bound Hulk, the heroic figure. You know, he does all this stuff. But if you actually read Judges on its own terms, the creed in the text is not, wow, Samson was awesome, be like Samson. The creed in the text is, look at what happens when you live with no moral foundation and you're a narcissistic, selfish person. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what is tragic about that is he had the spirit of God upon his life, which Mm -hmm. means it's possible for God to graciously pour into your life and you still be a self-willed, blind, narcissistic, carnal person making your own choices. And God doesn't stop you doing that. He he gives you agency and respects it and lets you operate by consent. You can consent to his work or not. Mm. And in the Samson narrative, there's this classic recurring thing actually it's all the way through the book of judges but there's a word play on um, vision and seeing so it's like samson went down and he saw a lion in a pit so he kills it then he went down and he saw this lady and he marries her and then he went down and he saw delilah and all and then what's funny is as samson keeps the narrative is building up samson lives by his own sight yeah mm. and judges will often say you know people did what there was no prophet in israel so everybody did what was right in their, their own, own eyes, eyes. Yeah. so it's this whole idea of of whose whose vision whose type of sight are you embracing mm. you just live what's right in your own eyes so then samson keeps living and living and living as to what's right in his own eyes and then what happens so he falls asleep in delilah's lap and she just wears him down day by day. We all we all know what temptation and the grind of the flesh is. <laughs> so he eventually weakens and tells her his actual secret. And then what happens? The Philistines grab him and they poke out his eyes and they put him treading out the grain. And like so one of the creedal applications of the Samson narratives is, well, you can live by your own sight, but it will cost you your ability to see in the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that's like we should teach people that narrative before we ever teach them scripture. Because they have to understand when I approach scripture, I cannot do this just in my own sight, so to speak. I'm being asked to embrace a different vision and that vision is the overlay that causes me to interpret and make ethical choices. Mm. Not my own sight, which goes, well, my own sight goes, well, that'd be cool. 57 wives, I'd never do another thing in my life. That's awesome. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I love, you know, just while we're talking about the book of Judges, you know, last week we spoke about the myth of redemptive violence and Really, I've always looked at the judge's narrative as it's actually what we're talking about is, you know, bringing your pre 
preconceived ideas to Scripture. So Judges could just, it's the most violent book in the Bible, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. If there was ever a book that was going to affirm God was into violence, he raises, anoints these people, they deliver the nation, uh, then it goes back into another spiral, and then he raises someone else up, there's a big war, they get free for a season, they go back in. Mm -hmm. But the big narrative to me is saying that Violence doesn't work. Mm. Ultimately, if you look at the whole book of Judges, it's like they don't end up in a better place. They fight all these wars, get God on their side in their own minds, and it's in tremendously violence. If anything, the book says it doesn't work. It's a demonstration of yeah. the failure of that entire system. That's you know? it. And That's there's it. A, there's a famous or, or, commentary. But, but some people will grab it yeah. as a justification. Yeah. It's an example of what you should okay. do. You yeah, know, go yeah. kick butt in the name of Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to be anointed and then just go kill all my enemies. And yeah. it's like, no, no, it, did it work for them? Yeah. They never. They don't read the end of the story. No. It didn't no, work. It didn't work. Yeah. yeah. They failed. <laughs> it failed. Barry Webb has written a commentary on this. He's a, he's a Hebrew lecturer and he's got a great commentary on the book of Judges. And what he says is, you know, that spiral you just alluded to, like, um, you know, God blesses them, they defeat the enemies, then they backslide, then the enemies defeat them, then they cry out to God, then God raises up a judge and then they get delivered again. And it's that cycle, right? Mm-hmm. But as the book goes on, the cycle gets less clear. So the second half of the book of Judges, it's not as cut and dried, that cycle. So Barry Webb says, because in writing Hebrew, they have no punctuation, no chapter markers and all that sort of so the rhythms of of a story are how points get made. So he makes this incredibly amazing insight on this topic, which is that as the book of Judge progresses, that clearly identifiable cycle starts to break down. So it becomes an ever-narrowing spiral type of thing, which is less and less clear every time it unfolds, which shows the breakdown of the entire system, all based around the fact that the book exists to critique the belief that maybe we could just be violent enough to solve all the problems mm-hmm. of evil in the world. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I guess uh, that's why I wanted to bring it up because it's sort of a bit of an illustration of what we're talking about, yeah. that um, if you bring your violent image, if, if you uh, you know have, have, have not allowed yourself to be restored mm. and embraced either suffering or embraced um, God's kingdom's a spiritual kingdom, If you come into it with the we need to make Australia a Christian nation again or America a Christian nation again or, you know, we're going to bomb our enemies to death so that God can... Rattle our sabres and let's go kill people in Jesus' name. Well, you're going to see it. Mm -hmm. You're going to go to the book of Judges and go, so there. Um, And yet I just love the way that we're talking about this, that hang Mm -hmm. on a sec, Mm -hmm. you know, what's the end of the story say? And that's what's incredible, like coming back to God as a moral monster, the ethics of Scripture, is that... What is interesting is if you're very cautious and you don't like hurtle in an ill-disciplined and unthoughtful manner into a narrative, because you know Hebrew narratives are they're desert writing, so they're read at camel's pace, which I understand well, being from the desert. Mm. It's like the slow plod of thoughtfulness rather than rushing into a mm-hmm. conclusion too quick. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I've got an old person telling me a story. It's a long, languid story. There's no rushing. I've got to put up with the entire story before a conclusion is arrived at. And that's like slow, but we want like bam, bam, bam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Morning, yeah. We, want the the t- t- we want the TikTok of Well, it. Judge, yeah. well, Judges chapter one, two, and three, damn, draw the sword and kill all the yeah. evildoers. That's it. But, <laughs> yeah. hang on. but if you persevere with the narrative, yeah. then actually the ethic it's asking you to embrace is something far more nuanced and deeper 
that really that's, you know, they say in psychotherapy, like that all of our pathologies are due to a story we believe about ourselves or others. And until a person believes a different story, they can never change their psychological pathologies. And the profound nature of that as a counseling strategy mm-hmm. is just incredible. Um, but I, I wish you'd said that slower. Mm. Like there's a lot in what you just mm. said. Mm. Yeah, which is not the point of this podcast. No, but, no, I know. But, but like the whole point is that, is that um, we rush into con- – this is how we get – you know, this is how you create a – let's just take a common topic right now. This is how you create a body image hatred of themselves in a young teenage girl. You show her glossy web images and Instagram feeds and magazine pictures of hot women who've been airbrushed and had driver side airbags installed mm-hmm. and makeup and mm-hmm. stylus. And then she has to go look at herself in the mirror and she doesn't have that stylus. She's not getting airbrushed. She's just seeing herself unfiltered and all this stuff, right? And so progressively she will grow to hate her body because she is absorbing a story. And the story is all the hot, pretty, neat, sexy, thin Kardashian people are like that and look at you, you're horrible. And so that's a story she begins to believe, Right. And then she's going to starve herself or, you know, what they do is their self-esteem plummet. So then they're going to go and they'll do anything any boys at school want, even though they're 12 now. And there's like this problem with 12-year-old girls and their sexual expressions because they're trying to get love and acceptance and, mm. and be somebody in the emptiness that they have, right? And so the, there's all of the system is going to go, no, stop doing that. No, don't do that. Oh, no, you might get herpes. Oh, no, you might get pregnant. Oh, stop cutting yourself, right? Mm. But that, they're not addressing what is the underlying problem. You believed a faulty story. Mm-hmm. The faulty story births a pathology inside you. Mm. The pathology then births behaviours and then the behaviours create a cycle where you feel bad so you do something and then you either feel better for a minute and then crash again and do it again or you feel worse and then you have to find another drug addiction or something to make yourself feel better. Mm. So there's this whole wow. spiral yeah. and everyone deals with the symptoms but anyway, this does have a point related to what we're saying. But the, the symptoms are the behaviours. The problem is the story you believe a certain Mm, story. mm. So until that girl changes the story she believes, she can't change those behaviours because they're they're illogical, emotional compulsions. She has no idea why she's doing it. She doesn't have the insight to understand, oh, you mean I'm doing that because of the glossy magazines and Instagram and all that stuff, you know? Mm. So that's one issue, right? But then think about this. At its core, Scripture itself and, in fact, the incarnation of Christ and the gospel gives every single one of us a story to buy into Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to substitute all of our broken, poorer stories. And then when it comes to scripture, what we do (laughs) is instead of invite the world to exchange its broken, horrible, blood-soaked, terrible demonic stories for the story of the suffering God that comes enthroned on a cross with a crown that is thorned that stretches out his hands and dies for his enemies instead of smiting them, we can exchange that story and then get a new identity out of it. But instead we want to go, no, but hang on a minute. Let's stone the adulterers and let's stone the homosexuals. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. rather than exchange a story, we're now broadcasting mm. um, ideologies that we can quote chapter and verse from without realizing. But the, but Genesis to Revelation, the canonical form of scripture is a sweeping narrative. And the most ethical thing we can do with scripture is help people understand what the flow of the story is because the story gets you joined to the God that we know in the face of Jesus Christ, Mm. which ultimately transforms everything about you. So then you can go back to scripture and have a look at it. And when you pass the Rorschach test of scripture, (laughs) because you see things as you are, not as they are, if Christ is in you, then when you go back through scripture, you see Christ in scripture. Mm-hmm. But if murder is in you, when you go back through scripture, you see murder in you. Yeah, mm. Great. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. That's yeah. powerful and clear. So um, 
back to ethics, like could we talk some specifics about some ethics that that we bring from Scripture or should be bringing from Scripture mm. and then how that plays out maybe in this very current environment, mm. you know, so we've got mm. a, you know, we've got an environment where there's certain elements, certainly again in our little patch of sky yeah. where Christians have, some have risen up with a kind of national, Christian nationalism on a certain level, even though that's not as developed as in Australia as it is in America. Um, there's that sort of feel for some people. There is people cobbling together passages to to say nasty things or just Christians, as we've had in past years, just putting foolish stuff up on social media, um, you know, using really using Scripture rather than trying to understand what Scripture is actually saying in a broader sense. Just cherry picking yeah. what works yeah. and yeah. firing it, loading yeah. a magazine full of favourite verses and shooting them off into the Ethernet. And, and I think in the the name of it, like in quotation marks, uh, sharing the truth with love. Like we've got, <sighs> it's got to be truth. We've got yeah. to have and the it, truth. And if you say that, share the truth with love. They're like, yeah, yeah, but but the truth. You but know, the like, truth. Yeah, like, yeah. Can like we get to the no truth? No one's part? hanging out. Yeah, no one's yeah. going. Oh, can I get some more love in this truth, yeah. guys? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. What I was saying before about yeah. when you talk cruciform love and. And the image of God in in the face of Jesus Christ. It's just amazing how people they don't so, jump. No, to we read. don't want that God, but we also yeah. want the God that's not that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's and often it's it's there's a deference or there's a you know there's a very shallow acceptance of. Oh yeah, of course, of yeah. course, God's like that. And then there's a but, but every time. Which but I Paul always says whenever someone says that to me, I say, "Do you realize that's the same as me saying I'm not racist?" But and then proceeding with a racial generalization because yeah, that's what yeah. everyone who does, right? Everyone who says yeah. I'm not racist, but the very next statement that comes out of their mouth, yeah, yeah, so it's generally the opposite. We know God's yeah. God of love, but yeah, yeah. You're just someone said to me once, "You're a great opposite. leader, but <laughs> 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 so you know, in this current mm-hmm. environment, and obviously with some of the big topics yep. um, that I think. You know, Christians and particularly this emerging generation have to yeah. wrestle with. I yeah. think, yeah. Uh, I think for me, uh, a green theology, mm-hmm. um, because honestly, Genesis one, we don't get the fact that the first job we were given was yeah. to care for the yeah. environment. Yeah. So whatever you mean, it doesn't matter to me mm-hmm. what you believe about. Um, you know the the energy crisis mm-hmm. and greenhouse gases mm-hmm. and global warming and it doesn't matter so much what you really believe about that uh, you should still have a theology of dealing with it yeah. of how yeah. do we yeah have we been complicit for the last couple of centuries the church as well as the mm-hmm. the world we live in of raping the resources of the yeah. planet with yeah. abandon yeah. yeah we haven't had a theology that's spoken out against that and yeah. now we've given that to political ideologues we've lost the space that God originally intended us to occupy. Mm, so mm. there's that, there's the LGBTQI, and mm, I think mm. the the biggest story around that is identity. Yeah. To me, that that whole issue is, is, yes, it's a sexual issue, but less of that than it is simply people grappling with lost identity, which is absolute tragedy. Mm, mm. Um, these bigger th- themes that run through our society mm-hmm. and biblical ethics, Ben, could we go into some yeah, of those let's, places? let's touch on some of that. And I think, I think so. Where you've started, like so, you started at Genesis one, which is the good place to start. You know, to un- to understand that all our ethics have to find a home in the creed we're asked to believe when we survey the canon of scripture. And so, I'm not surveying one bit of scripture because that one bit of scripture is subject to what happens 
you know, mm. what happens in Leviticus 19 is subject to what happens on Easter, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, etc. So I've got to survey the whole thing. So therefore, I have to look at the contours of the sweep of narrative and say, what ethics am I being asked to embrace by this? So if we took Genesis 1 as a starting point, mm. then we get um, this wonderful creation story. And again, whenever that story gets opened, what you really get is you get a discussion about evolution and you get a discussion, an argument <laughs> about is it six literal days or six metaphorical days mm. and there's the scale within Christendom of of who believes what about those things. But the whole point is that discussion, it, it even if it's important, it's a bit of a red herring because that's eisegesis. I'm reading my agenda into that text. Mm. What I've got to come is with almost like a an ethical blank slate and say when I open this and this is the first thing I'm told, what am I being asked to buy into here? What am I being asked to assent to, to affirm about life, the universe, God and everything, right? So, okay, so I read Genesis 1 without my Charles Darwin lens then. So I can't make an argument about evolution because it didn't exist when Genesis was put pen to paper. Right, <laughs> uh, yeah. So therefore I can't make it, I can't hijack it for that because as long as I hijack it for that, I'm not concluding what the author put in the text. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. That's eisegesis. I'm reading something into the text. Oh, good, a polemic against Darwinism. As legitimate as that may be, you know, I don't want my daughters growing up in the jungle of Darwinism. I want them to grow up in an ethical framework where they're going to be respected. So, so fine. I'm I'm not a Darwinist then. But the problem mm-hmm. is Genesis one is not why I'm not a Darwinist. Yeah, great. So great. then we open it up and we go, okay, well, well, what is our what is our story of scripture? And it's a sweeping narrative about a God who made a good ordered world in the face of a belief system that said the world is chaos that's made from the conflict of the dead gods type of thing, if you Mm -hmm. read what the Babylonians were saying about creation. Mm. And then God makes humans and says, you're going to be my image bearers. And then God makes a garden, which is a sacred space where heaven and earth overlap in that garden. And that's the home turf for Adam and Eve. And then God says, protect and serve this space, but also multiply and subdue. So that's the first this is, this is the beginnings of the story mm. world that we live in, right? Multiply and subdue. Oh, cool. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, in Eden, in its sacred garden, you're supposed to protect and serve that garden, right? That's what God put them there. And if you study the Hebrew on this narrative, it's blooming crazy mm. um, about what those words mean, Arbat and Shamar, to protect and to serve the land. Um, you do that in Eden. What do you do outside Eden? You spread what was inside Eden. You multiply. You're supposed mm. to spread around the face of the earth. Mm. Why are you supposed to spread around the face of the earth? Why can't I just stay in this nice garden? You know, the world is like um, unprotected virgin forest everywhere else. So, like, how is Adam and Eve supposed to survive out there in the wilderness of the world, you know? Um, but, of course, they're not supposed to survive. They're supposed to make Eden their home and then... Once they leave Eden, which they are supposed to do because they're told to multiply and spread out and subdue the rest of the earth, well, then what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to leave Eden knowing what Eden's like because it's their template for what the rest of the world's supposed to be like. Mm. So the rest of the world is supposed to be this hospitable sacred space. So it's in Eden, which is their home turf, that's where God says, see, you can have all of this for food. And actually what's crazy about Genesis is the fullness of life. Before you get to Jesus saying, I've come, that you would have life and have it to the full. In Genesis you know, one and two, it really is, I guess, two chapters. Um, you get a God who makes this vibrant world. Like think about the wanton wastefulness, a vibrant entire world, a globe, full virgin forest. And God gives it a population of two and says, you can have everything. You know, that's the scale of, um, you know, in theological terms. We, we talk about it as the hospitality of the God of the universe who didn't make 
a small home floating in space, but made a planet that Adam and Eve could probably never explore in a lifetime, given that there were no jumbo jets back then. You know, mm. so so it's this wanton, extravagant, hospitable universe. Nothing bad's happened. There's no cancer. There's no sin. You know, mozzies probably didn't bite you in horrible places. You know, like which is good because they're also naked vegetarians yeah. at this point, which is a crazy story. <laughs> naked vegetarians running around a garden, like, well, thank you, Lord. <laughs> so but, sounds like Byron Bay. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> it, it is. There's no sandalwood paste in the air in this story. But so this narrative, as it unfolds, though, this narrative is the very first thing we ever get told about anything. And so it's supposed to become the dominant matrix through which we view, I guess, the idea of how stuff's supposed to be. You know, so so before there's a question of ethics, there's a question of what is the world, what is reality, you know, and ethics comes up, well, then what do we do about this and what moral decisions we make in the face of that? But to understand the flavour of that decision-making, we have to understand the flavour of the maker who decided to create a universe you know, I always say about Genesis, Genesis is the story of a king called God who made himself a kingdom and put people in that kingdom so that he could rule over those people and that kingdom via them and their agency and exercise. So really it is that Genesis 1 is a story, what should the kingdom of God look like? What does the rule and reign of God look like? And the first thing we find out is that that in the Babylonian creation myths, uh, the gods create people because the gods don't want to do any of the work of feeding themselves and, and cultivating the land, right? Because uh, that's work and that's a real pain. Well, then let's take the entrails of this slaughtered god that, you know, the reason the universe came into being is because we slaughtered that god and we formulated the universe out of her blood and guts being mixed with earth. You know, that's the Babylon. That's how the Babylonians believe the world came into being. And then uh, we took some of her on, on entrails and made people so people could do the work of farming and offerings to bring to the gods. So in the Babylonian creation myths, the purpose of people is to keep the gods alive. In the Genesis account, which is a critique of that myth, uses a lot of the same verbiage and words mm-hmm. and, and conceptual discussions. In the Genesis account, the first concern is not for God's welfare. The first concern is for human welfare. God made a universe to flourish and he made people and he put them in the universe and said, now your job is to subdue, your job is to protect, your job is to serve. You've got to make this all flourish. I'm handing it over to you. You're the mini kings, the vice regents, the co-regents, and you do it as my image bearer. So go reflect me out into the rest of the planet, right? And there's this weird thing, which if you're a um, philosopher, you can't fail to notice in Genesis, which it says that God, um, that God gave Adam uh, all of the plants of the garden because they were beautiful to the sight and they were good for food Mm. it's like think about what that says about god but also about the universe we live in and about life that god concern is about function and aesthetics you can have it just because it's beautiful mate there's see the rose look how beautiful that is i made that for you to be moved and enjoy beauty Mm. you know and it's food so also you'll be looked after so in in babylon the the story is the humans exist to provide food for the gods, their slaves, their cattle, basically. In the Genesis myth, the universe is a place of divine hospitality that you are supposed to absorb and, and be grown into, but then it's not just to you, it's got to be through you. In in Eden, you're supposed to preserve that hospitable sacred space. And then outside Eden, you're supposed to extend that hospitable mm. sacred mm. space, which means now subduing. So again, um, we see things not as they are, but as we are. 
sort of colonial nations and empires for centuries have read multiply and subdue means go and kick butt, you know, mm-hmm. go and kick mm. butt. And, you know, um, you'll even hear Christians talk about environmentalism in these terms, but we're supposed to subdue the earth. So, mm-hmm. man, let's mine it, let's mm-hmm. dig it up, <laughs> let's let's bloom and cut down all the trees, you know. And it's like yeah. the narrative of what subduing means, but subduing doesn't mean that. Subduing mm. means this is wild, untamed creation. This is hospitable sacred space extend this hospitable sacred space out to the wild untamed creation. Mm. Mm. So it's called the cultural mandate that God could have made the world any way he want, but he left it just a little bit unfinished mm. so humans could exercise their agency and go and yep. do God's will in the world, right? But none of that is about, you know, there's no violence in the text. There's no murder in the text. There's no raping and pillaging and there's no grasping and, and theft and there's no self-interest. It, it is God, a perfect being, doesn't need to make a world. So why does he? God, a perfect being, doesn't need to make humans. He has perfect, you know, especially Christian theology, Trinitarian theology, Father, Son, and Spirit are perfect community. Community, There's no need. There's no lack. They don't need people. You know, God doesn't need people to make God's life better. God doesn't need our worship because his self-esteem is low and needs to feel encouragement by us, you know. So why why does God do that? And I think the, the only philosophical answer to a God that makes a good world and then puts humans in it and is good is because God wants to live in sacred relationship with people when people need a place in which to do that, which is the temple universe that he created, right? The only conclusion you could draw is, you know, because God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, so he has a relationship. He brings them alive by breathing his life-giving breath into their life, right? So, so, so what is a human being? A human being is necessary because being God is so good, it has to be shared, it has to be shared. So we make a world and we make people because being God is so good that there has to be something made to experience the goodness of God because that's all about self-giving. Um, you know, And you recognize it later in God in the face of Jesus who is all about self-giving mm. and kenosis and emptying, not considering equality with God something to be held on to. I'm just going to keep this to myself, but actually emptied and poured out to serve and bless others. Mm. So anyway, all of that's a big long-winded situation. But the point of it all is... Um, our starting point sets us on a trajectory. You know, mm. you get in a little rowboat and you push off, and unless you change via current or paddling the direction, you're just going to keep going in the direction that you were, that you pushed off in. So Genesis launches us into a world where our consciousness is permeated by God as a ultimately hospitable divine being of goodness, mm. and the world is a place that's supposed to know the goodness of God. But God doesn't say he's going out to subdue outside the garden. He says, I'm making you, you're my image. You go subdue outside the garden. So it's like the goodness of God has to be taken to a world that doesn't know the goodness of God. Mm. And everything in what it means to be human ethically is wrapped up in that God made this universe to flourish. He made people to flourish in it. And then he made them to go out and cause the rest of it to flourish. Right. Mm. So that's, you know, I mean, that doesn't answer some ethical questions other than to say, but the starting point is that the ethics of God is sacred space that live, loves and gives and builds human life and affirms human life and causes others to flourish. That's the that's the beginning point, the point of embarkation of the biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we probably have to move on from this and let you guys talk. But the, the point of, of Genesis 3 is when Adam and Eve make the decision well, we could be God's co-regents, which means I rule under God's rule and reign, 
And if we're God's co-regents, we depend on God for ethical questions because mm. they don't have the knowledge of good and evil, right? They haven't eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if they haven't eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how do they know what good and evil is? That's what that whole situation is mm. about. Mm. Well, how would I do that? Well, then you have to go to God the king and say, God, what is good and what is evil? He gets to define it because he's the author of reality, right? Mm-hmm. right? And what is the temptation of a snake? No, God doesn't want you to eat it because he knows if you eat it, you'll be like him. Well, newsflash, they were already like him with a mission, you know, mm-hmm. but they succumb. And when they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they really do is now the locus of good and evil, of good and evil is not in God, it's in them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be dependent on God for rule and reign. I don't want God to be the king. I don't want to, you know, yield and submit to him. And I don't want him saying what's good and evil. I want that within myself, by the way, in uni they teach us this is called moral relativism, mm-hmm. that the knowledge of good and evil is in me. So what's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. And that is like, you know, we can criticize Adam and Eve all we want, but every day of our lives we eat of the fruit of that same yeah, tree right. because yeah. we want to decide what's good and what's That's evil it. ourselves and not depend on a divine being. Yeah, it's back to that um, earlier picture maybe last week where we spoke about everyone doing right in their own eyes, mm, mm. doing what was right in their own eyes. And again, yeah, moral relativism and situational ethics and all of that sort of stuff that arises from it, subjective truth, full stop, has just like, and we probably, we should move on. I think we've got another another episode done really. But, you know, when you move away from uh, objective truth outside of yourself, anchored to something bigger than yourself, mm-hmm. You see some of the absolute carnage with confusion mm, mm. that we see in our society today. And again, you know, those big issues like identity stuff, which are really pressing and very, very real issues. Mm, mm, um, mm. It's just not a mystery how we got there. Mm, yeah, It's just not a mystery how we got there. I mean, how we get out of that jungle, obviously, yep. Yep. you know, from our perspective, it's going to be, you know, a, a redemptive a redemptive act, God mm. working in us, transforming us, renewing us, helping us return to true trust in him as the objective truth. Yeah. Yeah. But um, you can sort of see why our society has ended up mm. fairly devastated mm. by this stuff. And it's been people going, um, you know, not only am I the fountain of all truth, mm. so I'll tell you what's real and what's true, yeah. but actually just pulling the pin on everyone's mm. stability mm. of... Yep accepting objective truth and there's no such thing as solid objective truth yeah, you know outside yeah. of maybe scientific fact yeah, yeah. but now i mean who would have well, thought and even that can be questioned well in that's this what i'm saying age. who would have like, thought if i'm the locus of the knowledge of good and evil even science doesn't yeah, matter it, and it doesn't. i'm just waiting for people to start thinking they can fly and start jumping off buildings yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, the laws of gravity don't apply to me because i identify as someone who can fly today because we see <laughs> right now mm. You know, the the old appeal was follow the science, but we see right now in our society just so blatantly you actually can't insert for certain things because it will be offensive. It will be, mm. you know, and yep. so we've actually moved so far from any mm. sense mm. of mm. objective truth and, and a, a solid foundation of this is the way the world works. Yeah. that And that's where I think a lot of the... Um, the identity, mm. the shaking, the I'm not mm. sure who I am, I'm yep. not sure where I fit, I'm not yeah. sure what tribe I belong to and the desperation to create new tribes and try yep. and somehow gel with that. Mm. Anyhow, we're probably getting right off topic, but I, I think, I mean, that mate, that was fascinating and I've just got to say from the control room here, um, you did all that without notes. Mm. 
You're just running yeah, off right. the top of your head talking and, yeah. uh, mate, pretty, that is pretty awesome stuff. That's great. And, I mean, I don't know where we go next week, but I feel like that what you've just talked about there, that supreme ethic, I suppose, in a sense of, if I'm summarising it right, of, of God creating us to make the world flourish yeah. or help the world yeah. I feel like mm. that has some mm. far-reaching implications yeah. um, yes. that would be worth talking mm. about. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, to, to, to apply it. Yeah, to, to maybe in the next episode or maybe we'll move on to a, a whole new block because, as you say, that sort of is a framework mm. that, um, again, you could really just bear question everything. Is it life-giving? Yeah. Is it causing others to prosper, to flourish? And if it isn't, then it's probably not coming from that core ethic right from the beginning of creation. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, in terms of, ethical responses to situations it's a good overlay not who does scripture say to stone in this situation you know but actually what causes everything to flourish you know and you see it in Mm -hmm. the in in jesus the ache in jesus is he wants the individual he's talking to to flourish he wants the whole world to flourish he wants the nation of israel to flourish he's arguing the pharisees but he wants them to flourish Mm -hmm. you know like Mm -hmm. and so it's like and he says it, John 10, 10, right? The thief is the one that comes to rob, kill, and destroy. I've come that you would have life and have it to the full. That mm. is about flourishing for yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. That's a Genesis 1 and 2 thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think for Jesus, his, his, his ethical system was, if I've come that you would have life and have it to the full, then what he deals with is what stops that from happening. Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that goes under the guise of sin or demons or, you know, religion or law, you know, all of these things. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus grapples with in his ministry is, oh, wow, look at how much stuff goes under the guise of godiology or, or religion that actually stops this from happening. Oh, look, you can't even heal someone on the Sabbath now, so how can anyone flourish? So Jesus mm-hmm. overturns that yeah. Sabbath law. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think that that supreme ethic of flourishing the flourishing of the universe and the flourishing of people and well, well, what if if god is god so good why did the starving orphans in africa have to starve that's not the question the question is why did not why does god let it happen why do you let it happen you're the one giving co-regency over the world so yeah. you better do something about the problems of the world you know so it becomes right. this missional impetus for christian communities especially redeemed in the image of god but really any human is called to that same thing yeah mm. which gives me really tantalizing possibilities as a christian to say well, then if anyone is causing flourishing in our society, they don't even know they're a mission partner with me that I can possibly get involved right. with. Right. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Great. So good. Well, mate, it's, uh, it's great to have you. It's going to be great to have you again. We've been got a great you again. time. Can't wait. Again next week. We're going to get you back on your camel. And, on uh, camel. We're going to make and, uh, sure we feed and water the camel yeah, well good. for you so yeah, we can make the return yeah, journey. That's good. that's good. I don't want to do Luke Skywalker and have to, you know, cut it open and live inside it in the cold like on that. In, in Dolby yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So just as we go, last thought, what's your camel's name? Halkmachal. <laughs> Okay, everyone, that was fantastic. My name's Craig Tompkinson. Wasn't that an awesome session with Ben Teefee? And we're going to catch you here next week on the podcast. And in the meantime, go ride the hills of Toowoomba. See you later. You can cut that bit in, can't you? Yeah, I can. I'll just tidy that gap up. <laughs>